This morning we are in Joshua chapter 6, the battle of Jericho, as we continue our sermon series through these big stories of the Old Testament. Let's pray together before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your word by the power of your spirit. May you be exalted and glorified. May we be edified and built up as your holy people through your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for his sake, we pray these things. Amen. Joshua chapter 6, hear the word of God. It is written. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven tr trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, 
you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gate. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in the land, was in all the land. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Out of all the stories that I heard as a child... It might be this one that stuck in my mind above all others. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. It's a song that I still hum to myself to this day. It wasn't just a catchy song that captured my imagination, though. Perhaps it was that this, in my mind, was a story of a great battle led by a mighty warrior. Now, that's something that certainly will stick in the mind of a young boy. And if you added to that story the events that preceded it, Israel, Israelite spies being sent into the city on a secret reconnaissance mission who end up having to be hidden by a woman of ill repute before they make a daring escape down a rope from her house in the city wall as the king's men search for them to kill them. It, it makes it seem like the plot of a great novel or action movie. But when we read this story a little later in life through more mature spiritual eyes, we find that the song actually had it all wrong. This wasn't Joshua's battle. He's not the hero of this story. And it wasn't that he wasn't a mighty warrior or a great leader of God's people. He was those things, but Joshua is not at the center of this story. The priests are more central to this story. The Ark of the Covenant is more central to this story. And the effect of that is that this reads more like a religious ritual than a battle. 
especially when put in the context of chapter 5, in which all the Israelite men are circumcised and the first Passover is celebrated in Canaan. And if we are really thinking about the sequence of events here, circumcision seems like a really poor choice for the preparation of a great battle. But the point is that this was God's battle. It was his victory. Israel's role is one of simply participating in God's mighty work through ceremony and celebration. And these preceding events were designed to make them ready by way of ritual purity for being victors with God, who makes it clear from the outset that he is giving Jericho into their hands. So there is no military strategy laid out here unless you consider marching in circles, blowing trumpets, and shouting in unison a military strategy. The battle plan is, in reality, a religious ceremony recognizing God as the one who fights and wins Israel's battles. And this means that what God has to teach us through this story is far more than an encouragement to be brave and strong like Joshua. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But when we see this story for what it really is, we find that there is much to learn here, especially as God's people who are living as strangers in a strange land, holding firmly onto the hope that we have been given in God, awaiting the day when we too will be brought into the promised land. So there are three things in particular that I want to examine this morning. First, as, as one author puts it, we want to see how the so-called battle of Jericho puts in bold the severity of divine justice. We learn then of God's judgment against wickedness. Second, we should understand that this judgment, despite how brutal it might seem to us, can actually be a source of encouragement to us. And third, we should see that this isn't just a story about God's judgment, but also about his salvation. So those will be our three central points this morning, judgment, encouragement, and salvation. First, The story of Jericho is a clear picture of God's judgment against wickedness. Now, we can think of the victory over Jericho simply as a fulfillment of God's promise to give the land of Canaan to Israel. Jericho is very literally standing in the way of this promise's fulfillment. Jericho was positioned in a way as to be a gateway into Canaan. It was strategically positioned to guard the eastern approach to the high country. This means that if Israel was to have this land that had been promised to them, they had to go through Jericho. But even as God had stressed to Joshua and to all of Israel that he was giving them this land according to his promises, this wasn't really the whole story. You see, in Genesis 15, 16, when God made his covenant with Abraham, Abraham was promised the land of Canaan. But Abraham was also told at that time that his offspring would first be sojourners in a land that was not theirs, where, where they would suffer affliction. And God promised to deliver them and bring judgment on the nation they served, obviously referring to the, the time in Egypt. 
it would be after this that God would bring them back to the land of Canaan. But God added this in Genesis 15, 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites, if you remember, were descendants of Ham, the cursed son of Noah, and one of the main people groups in the land of Canaan. So what was meant by this statement in Genesis 15 was that Abraham's descendants would inherit the land not only as part of God's promise, but also as a means of judgment against the Canaanites for this, their sin. The sin of the Canaanites was not yet complete during the time of Abraham, but now it was complete. So this was not simply normal warfare for the purpose of conquering foreign nations or fighting against enemies hostile to Israel. Instructions for this sort of warfare are laid out in, Genesis, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. Jericho is treated differently, though. What God calls for here in Joshua 6 is the total destruction of Jericho, including women and children. We see this just before Israel invades Jericho and Joshua reminds them in verse 17 that the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. In verse 21, we're given a summary of Israel's invasion. We're told that they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, this might be particularly troubling to us. Why would God instruct such a, such a thing? It might seem contrary to, to holding a view that God is a loving and gracious God. But the scriptures are clear that this is according to God's just judgment. This had been a wicked, wicked people, which both the Old Testament and the secular historic records attest to. The, the Canaanites were known for their gross sexual perversions, for their zeal, for magic divination and, and other pagan idolatry. And, and as God proclaims through the prophet Ezekiel, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So we can be troubled by the total destruction identified here in the story, but the story that is presented in the Bible is that Jericho actually got what it deserved. It was devoted to the Lord for destruction, serving as both an offering to the Lord from Israel and as a just judgment against the sins of the Canaanites living there. Jericho then becomes yet another lesson on how God deals with sin. And it wasn't as though the residents of Jericho had not been given the opportunity to repent. They had. God had been very patient with them since the time of Abraham. And it seems that this was part of the task of the spies who had been sent ahead of Israel's advance on the city. They, they weren't just scoping the city out for attack. They were there to find any who believed in the God of Israel and who turned to him to find life. This is how they came across Rahab. But it was only Rahab who demonstrated faith there. If Rahab was spared, though, 
then by extension, so too could have any others who had repented of their sin and embraced Israel's God as the one true God. But the inhabitants of Jericho rejected God. They sought to kill the spies. And their continued rejection of God was symbolized in the first verse of this passage, which tells us now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. It wasn't just that they were shutting the gates to protect themselves from Israel's military invasion. It was also that they were shutting out the message that Israel came to deliver, repent, and turn to God. Even as they had heard of the the God of Israel, as they had heard of his mighty deeds, and they trembled before him, as Rahab tells the spies in Joshua chapter 2, they refused to repent. They attempted to close God out. So God destroyed them. And in doing so, he brought judgment on Jericho and provided future protection for his people from being led into sin themselves by the residents of the land. The the instructions on warfare in Deuteronomy chapter 20 continue in verses 16 through 18, saying, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord, your God. God didn't want Israel to be corrupted themselves by the sins of the culture of this land's inhabitants. So all was destroyed. And maybe it feels like these stories we have covered this summer are becoming a bit of a broken record. God's judgment has been a theme now in several of them. The flood, the Tower of Babel, the Exodus, the Battle of Jericho. But rather than believing that somehow the God of the Old Testament is a a wrathful and angry God, as opposed to the God of the New Testament, who is a loving and gracious God, we need to understand that these are not two gods, but one in the same God who takes sin very, very seriously. This is why God, in his perfect wisdom and love, took our sins upon himself in Jesus Christ on the cross, that our sins might receive just judgment in his own son's death, and that we might be washed clean of our sins. We should not, therefore, take sin lightly. These stories serve as a reminder of the seriousness of sin, the offense of sin to God, of the consequence of sin. And this explains why this chapter ends with a curse. Joshua declares, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. It might seem odd to us to curse a city that's just been destroyed, but... Deuteronomy 13 details the destruction of cities as devoted things to the Lord. And it ties the destruction to the idolatry that was represented in the city. It wasn't just sin in general that was judged. Specifically, it was idolatry. 
So a destroyed Jericho now stood silently warning all Israel of the terrible consequences of sin, especially the sin of abandoning the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts for other false gods. And indeed, when an attempt to rebuild the city years later during the wicked King Ahab's reign, it resulted in the death of the builder's two sons. First Kings 16.34 states that this was according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And this story today reminds us of the consequences of remaining in unrepentant sin, of rejecting God and chasing after the false gods of this world. It's a reminder that no nation no city, no family, no individual is beyond God's almighty reach. We can build up walls to try to protect ourselves against God. And actually, the archaeological evidence at Jericho shows not one wall, but two walls, which also explains the dwelling of Rahab being built into the city wall, as Joshua 2 tells us. The houses of the poor were built between the lower and the upper walls with the rest of the city sitting at an elevated and protected position. The archaeological evidence also shows that these massive brick walls, which were built upon retaining walls, did in fact collapse under themselves, as the Hebrew text describes which created a ramp over the retaining walls, which still stand today, and allowed the Israelites to go right up into the city as Joshua 6 states. By every worldly standard though, Jericho was an impenetrable fortress. And the residents might have found security in their walls, But they also had something else playing in their favor. You see, it was spring when Israel arrived at the city. This is evidenced by a flooded Jordan River mentioned in chapter 3 and the celebration of the Passover mentioned in chapter 5. So in addition to the fact that the city had a natural water source within its walls, they also had an abundance of food since the grain harvest had just been gathered in. They could literally wait out any encircling armies siege of the city but dearly beloved it wasn't enough despite the high walls despite the closed gates there is no strong fortress that is strong enough to withstand God's power there is nothing which is impenetrable to God just as Pharaoh's mighty army was no match for the Lord of hosts neither were Jericho's walls God's wrath came down on Jericho, and when archaeologists excavated the city thousands of years later, they discovered the total destruction of the city, which had been burned to the ground. And they found their large jars at what were once homes, still filled with the charred remains of the grain harvest, untouched by the invading army exactly as the Lord had commanded. The highest walls, stockpiled supplies, it wasn't enough then. And it still isn't enough today. Those who live in opposition to God might believe that they can shut God out, 
that they can deny his presence and power. They can convince themselves that they can live free from him. They can try to flee from his spirit. They can say in their hearts, there is no God, but they live under a delusion that will not last. Scripture proclaims that the day of God's judgment is coming and it repeatedly is declared that sinners will not be able to stand in the day of God's judgment. Nahum chapter one, verses six and eight, for example, state, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This should certainly cause us to carefully and prayerfully consider which side of the wall we are standing on. But regardless of which side we understand ourselves to be on, we should never take sin lightly. We should seek God's grace in Jesus Christ. We should also seek by God's power to put sin to death in our lives. Otherwise, we mock God's grace. After all, God's grace is not present in our lives in order that sin may abound in us, but rather that we might be freed from sin to live to righteousness. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it momentarily. But let's move on. God's judgment is not the only lesson we can take from this story. There's encouragement for us in this story as well. We find this in a couple ways. And the first is this. We can easily be discouraged by the wickedness of the world around us. Even as scripture declares that Christ reigns over all things, what we often see around us is the daunting dominion of darkness. It seems like an impenetrable force that cannot be overtaken. But this story calls us to a patient and quiet hope. And it really begins even before this sixth chapter of Joshua as Israel comes out of the wilderness where they had been wandering for 40 years to the edge of the Jordan. But the wilderness had not simply been wasted time. It was where God had tested and tried Israel. It was where they had been taught to trust his goodness, to, to wait patiently for the fulfillment of his promises. They had become spiritually fit in the wilderness and prepared to receive his promises in faith. And now they were ready. We see this as Israel crosses the Jordan, the males are circumcised, all of Israel celebrates the Passover and eats the fruit of Canaan for the first time. And on that day, the provision of manna comes to an end. And God declares, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The previous generation who had grumbled and complained and lacked faith had passed away in a new generation who had been slowly molded over the years to have a steadfast faith that would not be easily shaken by the challenges that lay ahead of them had developed. This is all detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I encourage you to read it. But the point is that the wilderness prepared them to receive the promise of a good land. And God has promised us that we too will enter into a good land. But for the time being, we are strangers in a strange world. And sometimes it feels as though we, we are just wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. We need to understand, though, that this is not wasted time. God is fitting us 
for our inheritance. But in this world of darkness, obedience might seem like drudgery. It it might feel like futility. Not much different than marching around a city quietly and then going back to camp. And what happened? Nothing happened, so it seemed. Day after day after day. But then the day came, and instead of marching once, they marched around seven times, and it might have seemed like seven times the futility, seven times the drudgery. But then the moment finally arrived when all that they had hoped for explodes into reality in a burst of excitement, and you see that it wasn't for nothing. It was for something. It was for something great. And the same is true for us. We are awaiting something great, gloriously great, something greater than we could ever have wished for or hoped for. But patient endurance is required. This is how God sanctifies us. It's how he prepares us for use in his purposes and the eternal weight of glory that is to come. And it isn't just patience that's required. It's quiet obedience. Listen, we don't have to be marching around taunting the enemy all the time, shouting insults, waving their coming defeat in their face. That isn't what life living a life seasoned with the salt of the gospel looks like. We can simply live with steadfast faith and confidence, knowing that the day will come when the trumpets will sound and the people of God will let out a shout as our conquering king descends from the heavens, ready to execute judgment and make known his victory. Until that day, though, we are called by God to aspire to live quietly, as Paul instructs the Thessalonians. Now, this doesn't mean that we are quiet about the gospel. It doesn't mean that we aren't out proclaiming the gospel to the world, urging repentance, holding out the hope offered in Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. It also doesn't mean that we aren't working to establish God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That we aren't working to bring justice and righteousness and beauty and truth and goodness in the culture around us. Our life in regard to these things should be bold and unashamed. But what it does mean is that we aren't constantly feeling the need to viciously bash and condemn the world around us. It means that we don't need to take up the weapons of the world to fight the strongholds of darkness that are so prevalent in our world. We can trust the means that God has given us. Prayer, God's word, worship, the sacraments, even when they seem like foolishness. So we aren't overly optimistic that this world is suddenly going to get better, nor are we hopelessly pessimistic that things are out of control. What we should be is patient and hopeful, trusting that in his good time, God will fulfill all his promises and that all things will one day be set right. And while we wait, we are called to simple obedience to God in order that we might demonstrate through our lives that we belong to him in whom we place all of our trust and that we understand that the victory has already been won. But we have another encouragement here for God's victory over Jericho stands as a pattern for God's victory over sin in us. You see, the battle isn't just out there, exterior to us. It's also within us. 
As we've already said, at the center of this battle was not warriors, but priests in the Ark of the Covenant. Look at how many times the priests in the Ark are mentioned in verses 4 through 13. And this is filled with significance, especially the centrality of the Ark, which is mentioned 10 times in these middle verses. What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was a symbol of God's abiding presence with Israel. It was also associated with atonement. The covering of the ark being viewed as God's mercy seat. And on the day of atonement, the priest would go into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat. And we know that this foreshadowed the atoning blood of Jesus poured out for us on the cross. Jesus served as the one perfect and final sacrifice, the true lamb of God. And so as the ark makes circles around Jericho with God's people, we have both a picture of God's judgment and his grace. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that God deals with sin. It is always, always, always met with his judgment. And so we as sinners either face God's wrath against sins ourselves directly or God's wrath is averted from us through a substitutionary sacrifice. Those who are not covered by this substitutionary sacrifice will be met with God's wrath just as those in Jericho were. As we've already stated, there is no stronghold secure enough to protect us from God's wrath. But for those who have, by faith, been covered by the atonement God has provided in his son, Jesus Christ, they will be freed from the dominion of sin. God's word in Romans 6 has promised for those who are in Christ, those who have been baptized into his death through faith and raised to new life with him, that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. God will get victory then either way. What a blessed promise this is for us who have faith, though, that God will give to us victory over sin and death. Our challenge is, by God's help, to repent of our sin and to seek to put to death sin in our own lives. It is to constantly be turning to Jesus Christ to find life rather than building walls and trying to protect ourselves from God. And this leads us nicely into our third and final point this morning. Even in the midst of God's judgment, this story ends with a picture of rescue and salvation that the Lord provides to all who believe. Before Joshua speaks a curse over the rebuilding of the city, we are told that Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. Rahab was spared because of her reception of and care for the Israelite spies. But what this really demonstrated was her belief in God as the one true God and her fear of him, which led her to flee to his mercy. And it is this faith that saves her from the destruction that awaited the rest of Jericho. Hebrews 11 confirms this for us. The story of Jericho then is not simply a story of judgment. It is also a story of salvation to all who believe in God, even a woman who came from a pagan Gentile background. And we shouldn't miss the significance that this was a woman who was both a sinner and a stranger to Israel. 
She stands as a shining example that God's promises extend beyond Israel. It would be through Israel that God's salvation would come to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Rahab points to the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, in whom the dividing walls would be destroyed and those who were far off would be brought near. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we get to Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, whose name appears there but Rahab. And so Jericho is not just significant for the judgment that occurred there. It is equally significant, if not more significant, for the salvation that occurs there and the implications it would have on the rest of history. So dearly beloved, what will it be for you? Will you put up walls? Will you shut your heart against God, refusing to repent of your sins and perish on the day of God's judgment? Or will you turn to Jesus Christ, place faith in him and be spared as Rahab was? Why should her experience not be yours as well? Why should you too not escape God's wrath through faith in the God of Israel? And if you have placed faith in Jesus Christ, God now calls you to a life of faithful obedience, patiently enduring the trials of this age, knowing that in Jesus Christ we have the victory until at last Christ leads us into our promised inheritance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for this story of Jericho. Lord, may the reader hear and understand May we know that your judgment is coming. May we flee to Jesus Christ for mercy. Lord, help us by your spirit to turn to him in faith, to repent of our sins. Help us by your grace also to trust in him, to live in faithful obedience to him. Lord, give us encouragement. Give us strength as we await the day of his return. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe. 